This is Many Things Considered, a podcast that connects current politics to our political history. Thanks much for listening. I'm Mark Johnson. Demonstrators, uh, dissenters, if you will, there on the streets of Portland, Oregon, a day after the election last November of Donald Trump as president of the United States. They were against him, by the way. Uh, The Portland protests were mostly peaceful, although there was some violence to property, at least one shooting and many arrests. The city's mayor condemned some of the protesters as anarchists. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust, people aren't being held accountable for, and that's something that needs to change. That's something that, you know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all, and it's not happening for all right now. And that's NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick talking about his dissent. He refused to stand for the national anthem before football games, and that protest, that dissent, has engendered, as the Portland demonstrations did, widespread condemnation. Political dissent, defined in the dictionary as holding or expressing opinions that are at variance with those previously, commonly, or officially expressed, has never been a neat or tidy process. But it is a defining characteristic of American politics, and dissent has shaped the country and its politics from the very beginning. We you know, valued dissent enough that the Founding Fathers put it into the First Amendment of the Constitution. That's Ralph Young, an historian at Temple University who has literally written the book on dissent. It's called Dissent, A History of an American Idea. Basically, Americans have dissented about every subject under the sun ever since then. You know, abolitionists fighting against slavery, suffragists fighting for the right of, for women to vote, workers fighting for the right to unionize, um, you know, the civil rights movement, all the movements that have kind of come out of that since the 1960s, whether it's gay rights or environmentalism. Okay, confession. I'm kind of fond of dissent. If you're not a fan, uh, perhaps you best get used to it. Dissent seems to be very much on the rise. And I hope you might consider by the end of this episode that that is not altogether a bad thing. Much that defines America in the 21st century is at least in some way a product of our tradition of dissent, an idea we'll explore in this episode that we'll call in the great American tradition. I'll also be talking with historian Michael Kazin, who edits a journal called Dissent. Kazin says political progressives are still reeling from the prospect of a Donald Trump presidency, but in the long tradition of American dissent, they'll get over it and channel their anger into political activism. Uh, progressives will have to figure out a way to be to be clever strategically, I think, as well as uh, just righteously angry about what Trump is doing. And a third historian will join us in this episode, Nick Salvatore. He teaches at Cornell University, and he'll tell us about one of the great dissenters in American history, the socialist Eugene V. Debs, a man who ran for president five different times and captured nearly a million votes while serving a term in prison. And of course, he was speaking out against war, perhaps one of the most common subjects of dissent in American history. Being in the minority never proves that you're wrong. In fact, history is going to record that Senator Greening and I voted in the interest of the American people this morning when we voted against this resolution. 
That gravelly, self-confident voice belonged to Wayne Lyman Morse, United States Senator from the great state of Oregon. Morse, he was dubbed by one critic the Typhoid Mary of the Senate, was truly a great dissenter. Morse was first a Republican, but he dissented. He became an independent and eventually a Democrat, who then dissented against the president of his own party. The vote that Morse was referring to was one of only two votes cast against the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in 1964. That enduring controversial action effectively gave Lyndon Johnson, a Democrat like Wayne Morse, a blank check to escalate American involvement in Vietnam. We got to back our president. Since when do we have to back our president or should we when the president is proposing an unconstitutional act? Wayne Morse seemed at the time to many to be some kind of -of out-of-touch political crank. But that's a thing about dissent. Today's out-of-sync dissident is history's courageous patriot. Wayne Morse qualifies. Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. For the most part orderly, Minor scuffles did occur between the demonstrators and hecklers. A three-hour parade takes the demonstrators across the Potomac on their way to the Pentagon. The crowd estimated at about 50,000 persons was a loose confederation of some 150 groups and included adults, students, even children. It is at the Pentagon where the first test of strength comes. Military police contain the crowd, but clashes soon break out. Federal marshals arrest several who attempt to break through the protective line. Reinforcing the marshals, a second wave of MPs with fixed bayonets in scabbards move into position. Some 400 demonstrators are arrested, two soldiers are injured, and tear gas is used. Six break into a Pentagon side door, but are quickly apprehended in the day-long disturbance. The next day, campfires are lighted to hold off the autumn chill. The same weekend saw nationwide demonstrations supporting American GIs in Vietnam. The Pentagon protest was less violent in its second day of sitting in. The two-day protest ends with over 600 arrested and the widespread opinion that the demonstration made everyone a loser. And that's a soundtrack of a newsreel from about 1966. Here again, historian Ralph Young. You know, like every war in our history has been protested against, and quite often, especially during anti-war dissents, uh, a lot of people will say, oh, these people are unpatriotic. But that's basically a load of bull, because you know, to be, you know, it's one of the definitions of being an American is this right to protest. And so when people are protesting against anything, they are kind of exercising one of these most fundamental of American traits. Georgetown University historian Michael Kazin is just out with a new book about the dissenters who tried to keep the United States out of World War I. They failed. Many went to jail. That's right, opposing the war could get you sent to prison. Just speaking out against the war, speaking out against the draft became illegal. And the, the, the Espionage Act passed in 1917 and amendments to it passed in 1918. So it was very difficult and, and, and dangerous to oppose the war, but a lot of people kept opposing it, uh, went to jail for opposing it. Eugene Debs, the socialist leader, most famously. Um, and 
in many ways, uh, the anti-war movement kept making its arguments uh, as well as they could during the war and kept defending uh, their members who were prosecuted. Um, and uh, in the end, I think they convinced Americans uh, by the early 1920s that the war had been a mistake. Uh, and so really it wasn't until... Uh, World War II, that uh, Americans sort of got behind uh, uh, military intervention overseas again in a war which was, I think, a good war, World War II, as opposed to World War I. So it's a story, I think, about a, a large social movement, um, the anti-war movement, uh, which linked up with its friends in Congress, its allies in Congress, and uh, was successful at, at stopping the pro-war factions from leading the U.S. into war. But in the end, did fail. But in some ways, one one of the argument uh, retrospectively. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. The familiar, eloquent voice of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. His last speech the night before his assassination in Memphis, Tennessee, in 1968 a year marked by a huge outpouring of dissent in America. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Historian Ralph Young had Dr. King in mind, as well as the dissent against the American war in Vietnam, when he set about several years ago to create a class at Temple University that would focus on the subject of dissent. He thought his course would deal with the 1960s, but he quickly came to realize the American story of dissent was much, much bigger. You know, it became so clear to me that dissent was absolutely central to American history, and it's one of our defining characteristics. I asked Ralph Young for some examples of widespread political dissent that shaped American history. He mentioned, of course, the anti-slavery movement prior to the Civil War, but then offered a reminder that some old issues, some old dissents, are new again. Almost as powerful as the anti-slavery movement was the anti-immigrant movement. The nativism, the xenophobia of the 1850s gave birth to the uh, the Know-Nothing Party, uh, and they had a huge influence on presidential elections during that time. So that, um, you know, this anti-immigrant dissent that was going on is something that has happened many times throughout American history in the 1920s, and of course, we've seen it a lot in this just this past couple of years. Something my Negroes don't have. If I'm gonna die, I'll die now, right here fighting you. 
If I'm gonna die, you my enemy. My enemies are white people, not Viet Congs or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs, and you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. The great heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali, perhaps the greatest boxer ever, but also a great dissenter against the draft, against Vietnam, and for civil rights. And of course, Ali was a convert to Islam. An interesting thing also about dissent is that it comes from both ends of the political spectrum. Uh, we know very clearly about a lot of you know, more left-wing dissent people fighting for rights and or fighting against you know, or protesting against a war. But there's there's been right-wing dissent as well. I mean, one can think in terms of the Ku Klux Klan uh, are kind of one of our most famous terrorist organizations in the United States. Basically, started off immediately after the Civil War to protest the new reality of uh, a, a non-slave society. They wanted to kind of turn back the clock to uh, to a period of white supremacy that existed before the Civil War. So you have um, dissent coming from both ends of the political spectrum. Although I must also say that I do think that the majority of American dissent has come from the left, but an awful lot of it has come from the right as well. One of the great dissenters of the early 20th century was a fiery progressive from Wisconsin by the name of Robert Marion La Follette, first governor and then U.S. senator from Wisconsin. Like much dissent in more recent times, Robert La Follette's big issues were a rigged capitalist system that encouraged monopoly, at least that was his view, deepened income inequality, and concentrated power on Wall Street. Bob La Follette would have been right at home with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. And La Follette opposed an increasingly expansionist American foreign policy. He voted against American involvement in World War I, for example. He never accumulated great political power, but he wielded political influence on a great scale. When he ran for president on a third-party progressive ticket in 1924, he advocated many positions that within a decade had been incorporated into Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Listen to this little clip of Robert La Follette fighting Bob in 1924 and how he equates his resistance to concentrated economic power to genuine American patriotism. Mere passive citizenship is not enough. Men must be aggressive for what is right if government is to be saved from those who are aggressive for what is wrong. There is work for everyone. The field is large. It is a glorious service, this service for the country. The call comes to every citizen. It is an unending struggle to make and keep government representative. Each one should count it a patriotic duty to build at least a part of his life into the life of his country to do his share in the making of America according to the plan of the fathers. A lot of dissenters have been demonized in their time, and uh, those who were so, somewhat successful have, of course, since then been 
applauded by by history. You know, like when you think of Martin Luther King, I remember even at the time that he was assassinated, there were a lot of Americans that were very happy he was assassinated. Uh, he really had a, a, a hard fight to, to, to do what he did, and he really did lay down his life for this. Uh, and of course, now we have a holiday for him. So uh, you find that often the case, too. You know, Susan B. Anthony was vilified in her time and now uh, is very highly thought of as in history books. I want to mention again Ralph Young's fine books, two of them really on the subject of dissent. Dissent, the History of an American Idea, published in 2015 by New York University Press, and Dissent in America, The Voices That Shaped a Nation. It's a collection of primary documents, speeches, sermons, letters, even songs. That book was published in 2008 by Prentice Hall. Michael Kazin's book on dissenters from the political left is called American Dreamers, published by Knopf in 2011. And his most recent book, just released, is War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918. It was published by Simon & Schuster. I'm looking forward to reading it. Now on to part two of this episode, what we're calling a great American tradition, dissent. I'm Mark Johnson. Thanks for listening. We love to hear from you, by the way. Send your ideas, comments, okay, even your critiques. I'll read them all. Email is markj, that's mark with a C, M-A-R-C-J, at gallatinpa.com. Also, follow us on Facebook at Many Things Considered. I'm on Twitter at The Johnson Post, which is also my blog on politics, history, books, baseball, and many other things. Love to hear from you at any time. Nick Salvatore, and I'm a professor at uh, Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Nick Salvatore is also the biographer of Eugene Victor Debs, a classic American dissenter and a role model for this guy. So to me, democratic socialism means democracy. It means creating a government which represents all of us, not just the wealthiest people in this country. All right. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders actually once made a film about Eugene Debs, and he frequently has cited Debs as an example of what Sanders calls democratic socialism. Debs, as his biographer Nick Salvatore told me recently, actually had a fairly typical upbringing in Terre Haute, Indiana. Only later in his life, after about age 40, did he become the dissident that we remember, willing to go to jail for his belief. Like other stories in more recent times, it was an economic depression, this time in the 1870s, that introduced Debs to ideas that he eventually embraced, including concern about what we would today call income inequality. The, the misconception is that somehow he was he was born a protester and he was born a socialist. He wasn't. Um, he didn't actually um, commit to socialism uh, until he was 42 years old. Uh, and that came, it came that that slow transformation really came through uh, a process of of uh, going to work for the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen. 
The Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen was a union representing the guys who hoist the coal into the locomotive boilers. It was demanding, dirty, difficult work. And it was there that he had his first experience with uh, trying to understand the complexities of work when what seemed to him and others to be really very obvious you know, things that should be corrected were met with great resistance consistently by either the, the, the superintendents of the line or indeed if they ever went further up the line uh, by the owners themselves. In this period, Eugene Debs is still working within the political mainstream. He was elected to the state legislature in Indiana as a Democrat and mentioned as a future Democratic candidate for Congress. He eventually became the head of the Locomotive Fireman Brotherhood and gradually came to see the power of industrial unionism, the idea that all workers unite together as opposed to trade unionism, separate unions for firemen or bricklayers or carpenters. That's what the American Federation of Labor was espousing at the time. Preaching the cause of industrial unionism kept Debs on the road for weeks on end, and he developed a standard stump speech. Bernie Sanders had one, too. And Nick Salvatore says it included always a key paragraph. I think this is almost a direct quote. I am not a labor leader. I wouldn't lead you to the promised land if I could, because if I could lead you in, somebody else could lead you out. You have to use your head as well as your hands, and get yourself out of your present circumstances. Charismatic on the stump, mixing evangelical zeal with a compelling political message, Eugene Debs appealed to a broad cross-section of voters, including many immigrants who struggled with the language of a new country. There are interviews with, by newspaper reporters that go up to these, these folks and they'd say, what did you make of it? You, did, did you? And they would say, well, you know, you know I, I don't know much much English. And the reporter said, well, how can you be so sure you're for Debs? said, because he talks with us, to us with his hands and with his heart, and we understand him. And there was this power that he did have as an orator that worked, that's at times could even kind of trans- transcend those language difficulties. Eventually, Debs ran for president on the socialist ticket five different times steadily increasing his percentage of the vote until he won fully 6% of the vote in 1912 in a four-way race that saw Woodrow Wilson elected president. I asked Debs' biographer if he had, by 1912, become a real threat to the established political order in the United States. One way of gauging that uh, is, uh, to, is to note that he wasn't arrested in 1912 and 1913 uh, uh, by the authorities. 6% of the vote was not considered to be dramatic, if you will. Um, at, but by 1917 and 18, when he came, uh, when he had been very sick also, but then he came, kind of dramatically came out, came out of the, the sick bed and uh, uh, began to talk against the war, against World War One. Then that's when he got arrested uh, and sentenced to 10 years in jail. But uh, I think there, the where his he was perceived by Woodrow Wilson and uh, A. Mitchell Palmer, the attorney general at the time, as being a threat was because it wasn't just because of the 6%, but the anti-war position had a much larger uh, attraction than just the relatively small socialist vote. Um, and I think that's where he was perceived. Uh, I, I think he might have been an irritant 
to some of those in power in 1912. But he was not perceived, I don't think, really as a danger. But, it, but by 1917-18, even though he was even older and had been had some serious illnesses in the intervening time, uh, that's when he was seen as uh, as really quite quite dangerous. On the 16th of June, 1918, the United States is at war in Europe, World War One. Eugene Debs made a speech in Canton, Ohio, always a politically important state, and urged resistance to the military draft. The United States had entered World War I just a little over a year earlier. Obviously, no audio survives of that speech, but I have perhaps the next best thing. The actor Mark Ruffalo from 2007 reading a portion of Debs' anti-war speech in Canton, Ohio. Sam Johnson declared that patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. He must have had the Wall Street gentry in mind. Or at least their prototypes. For in every age it has been the tyrant, the oppressor, and the exploiter who has wrapped himself in the cloak of patriotism. Or religion. Or both. To deceive and overawe the people. Every solitary one of these aristocratic conspirators and would-be murderers claims to be an arch-patriot. Every one of them insists that the war is being waged to make the world safe for democracy. What humbug! What rot! What false pretense! Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder. In the Middle Ages, when the feudal lords concluded to enlarge their domains, to increase their power, their prestige, and their wealth, they declared, they declared war upon one another. But they themselves did not go to war any more than the modern feudal lords, the barons of Wall Street, go to war. The feudal barons of the Middle Ages, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all the battles. The poor, ignorant serfs have been taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon one another and to cut one another's throats for the profit and glory of the lords and barons who held them in contempt. And, and what is war in a nutshell? The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. <laughs> the master class has had all to gain and nothing to lose, while the subject class has had nothing to gain and all to lose, especially their lives. They have, always, they have always taught and trained you to believe it to be your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourselves slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, you, the people, have never had a voice in declaring war. And strange as it certainly appears, no war by any nation in any age has ever been declared by the people. 
The working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish their corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war and they alone make peace. Yours not to reason why, yours but to do and die. That is their motto. And we object on the part of the awakening workers of this nation, if war is right, let it be declared by the people. Two weeks after that speech, Debs was arrested and charged and ultimately convicted for violating the Espionage Act of 1918. The U.S. Supreme Court, in a unanimous ruling, upheld his conviction, and he went to prison. We know now, of course, thinking about the First Amendment as it's applied in the 21st century, that he was exercising his First Amendment rights. But, as we know from our history, dissenters haven't always been protected in that way. When Debs left the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, he'd been pardoned by President Warren Harding in December of 1921, There's some wonderful old newsreel footage of this scene. He pauses briefly as he walks away from the prison, turns his back to the camera, and waves his hat to the inmates still inside the prison who are cheering his freedom. A crowd estimated at 50,000 greeted him on his return to Terre Haute, Indiana. Again, Nick Salvatore. He really is an example of an attempt to take aspects of the socialist critique and meld them, if you will, with um, that small democratic tradition that goes back to the very beginnings of of our political culture. Uh, And I think that's really where his value is. And so uh, America has not been very um, hospitable, if you want to put it that way, uh, to... um, to to more orthodox socialist approaches, at least in the electoral field, uh, and I th- and I think that Debs that that's what Debs uh, in his era attempted to do. In the long sweep of American history, it has been the power of capital, and not Eugene Debs' dissenting small D democratic socialism, that has prevailed in the political and economic debate in this country. There has perhaps been only one obvious exception. The New Deal is looking more and more like the long exception in a very real way. It's depressing to say that, but I think it's I think it may be accurate. So how does the American history of dissent inform us in the coming age of Trump? a president who won the Electoral College but lost the popular vote by the greatest margin in American history. Donald Trump assumes the presidency as the least popular president, certainly in modern times, perhaps ever. The dissent around President Trump and his policies will be widespread. And Michael Kazin, the editor of Dissent Magazine and the historian at Georgetown, says to be effective as ultimately opposition to Vietnam or support for civil rights became politically effective, The dissenters must turn their anger into political action, 
including a political alignment with some elements of the National Democratic Party. That has not yet gelled, I don't think, that coalition. And um, uh, it's going to have to gel to at least to a degree uh, to be successful, I think, in stopping Trump. Uh, I mean, Trump could, after all, uh, be his own worst enemy in in all kinds of ways. Um, There could be scandals. uh, There could be tremendous conflicts between him and and Republicans in 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 the Congress. But... But it would be not it would not be wise for aggressors to to uh, depend on that happening. Uh, it's more likely that, that he will get some of what he wants through. He has Congress on his side. He gets to make at least one, perhaps more Supreme Court nominations, and probably get those through as well. So, so um, uh, aggressors will have to figure out a way to be to be clever strategically, I think, as well as uh, just righteously angry about what Trump is doing. Michael Kazin offers the fundamental historical lesson about dissent. Demonstrations are important, but political change only comes when legislation gets passed. As I've written about in my book, American Dreamers, uh, the left, the radical left, has been successful in many ways in changing the culture of America in terms of great gay rights, in terms of civil rights, uh, in terms of women's rights, uh, um, for example. Um, but in order to um, make lasting gains in law, it obviously needs to get people in government to pass laws uh, that support uh, the cultural changes already taking place. And I think you see that with, with gay rights, for example, uh, which has been probably the most successful single issue movement in recent years uh, in American politics. Uh, it began as really a cultural movement calling for people to come out and uh, talk about um, you know what their sexuality really was and uh, um, and to show people that they were you know not scary <laughs> that they just wanted to love people they wanted to love but it took a long time before um, what was called the gay liberation movement became the gay rights movement uh, and was able to win victories anti-discrimination laws uh, against LGBT people and of course more recently uh, marriage equality There has often been dissent, sometimes major dissent, around the inauguration of a new president. Protesters turned out in 1972, for example, to agitate about Richard Nixon's Vietnam policy, and they opposed Ronald Reagan in 1980. But historian Ralph Young says you have to go back a long, long way to find a circumstance that rivals the present moment, like perhaps all the way back to 1824, when John Quincy Adams won the electoral vote but lost the popular vote to Andrew Jackson. Lots of Jackson supporters uh, were they were angry, and they made sure that Adams was a one-term president. Here's Professor Young. There's another historical parallel. It was in 1913 when Woodrow Wilson was inaugurated president. You had uh, thousands, tens of thousands of women marched on Washington demanding women's suffrage. And they had a um, uh, wound up getting an audience with Wilson on the day after he was inaugurated, and where they demanded that he tell the Democratic Party to support this amendment that was being debated in the Senate, you know, to give women the right to vote. And Wilson kind of sort of you know brushed them off and said, "Well, you know, I haven't really thought about it." And they got really ticked off at that and started. Uh, picketing the White House until Wilson changed his mind and told the Democratic Party to support the amendment. It took, it took quite a few uh, months and even years to get to that point. But uh, I, I 
sort of reminds me of this because I know there's going to be these women marches, not only in Washington, but in Philadelphia and New York and other cities around the country uh, on what the day after inauguration this year. So it kind of reminds me of what happened in 1913. Thanks for joining us for this episode on Dissent, a great American tradition. If you enjoy what we're doing, please tell your friends. And again, we love to hear from you. Ideas, suggestions, questions, comment, all important, and I value the feedback. Truly do. For more on the fascinating story of Eugene V. Debs, check out Nick Salvatore's book, Eugene V. Debs, Citizen and Socialist. It won the Bancroft History Prize, very prestigious, in 1982 when it was published. Many Things Considered is produced with support from Gallatin Public Affairs, operating for more than 25 years at the intersection of business, politics, the media, and government in the Pacific Northwest and beyond. On the web at gallatinpublicaffairs.com. Episodes of Many Things Considered are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Gallatin website, and pretty much every place else you can find a podcast. I'll leave you with this today. On April 13th, 1954, CBS News broadcast a half-hour report on the politician who may have been, after President Dwight Eisenhower, the most famous person in America, Joseph R. McCarthy, the Republican senator from Wisconsin, an erstwhile hunter of communists in government. McCarthy, by the way, held the same Senate seat that 30 years earlier had been occupied by Robert La Follette. I'll leave you to ponder the last few seconds of the closing commentary by the legendary CBS broadcaster Edward R. Murrow. He's critical, very critical, of McCarthy, of course, in this famous broadcast. But what stands out to me is his timeless comments about dissent pushing back against what many of us might see as dangerous or even un-American. It was a powerful sentiment in 1954, and it still is. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Mark Johnson, and here's Ed Murrow from 1954 on the broadcast, See It Now. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear, one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent, or for those who approve. We can deny our heritage and our history, but we cannot escape responsibility for the result. There is no way for a citizen of a republic to abdicate his responsibilities. As a nation, we have come into our full inheritance at a tender age. We proclaim ourselves as indeed we are, the defenders of freedom wherever it continues to exist in the world. But we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, 
is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night and good luck.